the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God had been so faithful to the children of Israel. In response to all that God had done for them, Moses called the people to love God supremely with their whole being in every aspect of their lives. They were to continue to follow the Lord and obey His word even when Moses would die and a new leader would take his place. Moses had blessed all the people of the nation, declaring to them that the greatest blessing they would have is to be near to their great and awesome God. It is in His presence where true happiness is found. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. Verse 29, Happy art thou, O Israel, for who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord? The shield of your help, and who is the sword of your excellency? All in your enemies ye shall be found liars unto thee, and ye shall tread upon their high places. Happy are you, O Israel. Happiness is usually defined by getting what I want. I mean, that's generally how we define happiness. Whether it's a possession, an accomplishment, or the the way someone views me, or even a way of life. But none of that was the reason that Israel was so blessed, so happy. They were happy because they'd been rescued by the Lord, right? That's why they were happy. I want to challenge you tonight, if you're struggling with finding meaning in life or in experiencing joy, you just don't have a lot of it in your life. Perhaps you're trying to find it in places it doesn't exist. Or perhaps you're trying to find it in places that can be taken away from you. Sounds like a good song, looking for love in all the wrong places. See, the only place that that's not true, you're not looking for love in the wrong place, is your relationship with the Lord. The beautiful thing about the Lord, it tells us, okay, so if things go bad, let's say things go south. Like when we talk about happiness, we usually like things going my way. But what happens if things go south? Well, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then to all these things? The love of God, the salvation that God has brought to us. This is Paul's conclusion at the end before he has that little segue into Israel. What shall we say then to these things? This great salvation that God's done for us. That whom he justified, them he'll also glorify. You know, he's working together for good, all things to those who love God and who are the called according to his purposes. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us, right? Seriously, when we look at where does my happiness come from, it doesn't matter what anyone throws at me. Because if God is for me, who can be against me? Why does it matter? He that spared not his own son. Think about that for a minute. He didn't hold back his own son from us, but delivered him up, delivered him to the hands of sinners to be crucified, to be beaten, to experience our wrath, the wrath we deserved. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. If he loved us enough to do that, how shall he not with him, now that we are in him, also freely give us all things? Wow. I think about that for a minute. I have nothing to worry about. Because if I come to him and say, Lord, Lord, this is a need I have, or, or this is where I'm at. I can know that if God is saying no, then it's not something that's good for me. But more often than not, God's going to say yes in the best possible way I can experience. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can accuse me of anything? Who can tell me I'm a loser? Who can tell me I'm a failure? Who can tell me I don't measure up? doesn't matter. It's God who justifies. And who is he that condemns? It's Christ who died. He already took whatever it is I deserve. He's already experienced all that condemnation of men and the wrath of God. But he didn't stay there. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that has risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. And what's he doing for us there? He's making intercession for us. So if somebody comes and says, you failure, you'll never get it right. And you say, well, I've got somebody who's praying for me. And he seems to do things pretty well. Not only did he already die for everything you've just accused me of, not only did he pay the penalty for everything that I might be that you say I am, but he rose from the dead. He defeated death. And now he lives forevermore praying for me. That life is in me now. So whatever you might accuse me of, whatever you might call me, that he doesn't call me, guess what? I'm not gonna stay this way. So I don't have to absorb that. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I mean, some of that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But it says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we, we use these verses and we say them and we, we don't really think about what they're trying to communicate. However bad things might get, oh, how happy thou art, O Israel, for who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord. You know, I can say the same thing to you. Oh, how happy Calvary Chapel of Orlando. For who is like unto you, O people saved by the Lord? Can't beat this. Can't beat this. He also says here, the Lord who is the shield of your help and who is the sword of your excellency, your enemies shall be found liars unto thee and you shall tread upon their high places. Love this because the very last thing that Moses says to the nation of Israel, for all his grumpiness, for all his worried you know, thoughts about their future, his last words are confident. He says, you will defeat them. You will succeed. What a powerful way to leave God's people. I mean, here he is just a chapter earlier going, I know you're all going to corrupt yourselves. I know you're all going to disobey God. I know you're all going to get involved in idols. But what's the last thing he leaves them with? He says, you will win. You will defeat your enemies. You will succeed. And can I tell you that whatever you're facing right now, you are going to make it because it's the Lord who fights for you. He loves you and he's not gonna let you down. So keep walking. Love Jesus supremely. That's the whole theme of this book. Love him supremely. Keep his commandments and he'll see you to the end. Chapter 34, Moses is done. So it says, Moses, he went up, verse one, chapter 34, he went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah. That is opposite, over against, King James says. It's opposite, facing Jericho. And there the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim, Manasseh and all the land of Judah, even unto the uttermost sea. And then the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, even unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So here Moses sees all the land, and it says the Lord showed it to him. The word there showed means the Lord caused him to see or understand how the land was. The view that Moses takes from the Transjordan there, he looks where he's at on the mountain and he looks to the north, the area that was already occupied by Israel, goes up to Dan and then he comes down the coastline to the Mediterranean Sea, to the land of Judah, the little bit south area where Simeon would settle and he comes right back up to the area of Jericho and the city of Zoar, which is right across from where 
Israel was camped. He does an entire circuit back to the valley below where God's people were. And so in doing so, Moses sees all the land that will soon, in just a few years, be under Israeli control. Now, because of the terms that are used here, it says the land of Dan, Naphtali, all that kind of stuff, many see this chapter as an addendum written either by Joshua or some scribe hundreds of years later because Moses couldn't write about his own death. Some would also claim this to be so because these locations are named. Moses wouldn't think of it, they would say, as Naphtali or Dan or Manasseh. He wouldn't know it as that yet because he wouldn't know where they were going to settle. They would say no Israelite would know where they were going to settle down. And so Moses wouldn't call those locations by these names, so it had to have been written by someone else. But there is one tiny problem with that view. It doesn't take the Lord into account. Because here it says it was the Lord who caused Moses to see these places. Can you think of anything more comforting to Moses in this painful moment? Because he knows he can't go in. It mentions right at the end, you will see it, but you can't go in. Can you think of anything more comforting to Moses in that painful moment than seeing Israel victorious in the land? I mean, it's even possible that the Lord showed Moses the future and he saw Israel settling in these areas and that's how he identified them by their tribes, where they were settled down. It's possible. Either way, I do believe God shows the Moses the land as it would be, not as it was at that point in time. So despite being able to help conquer the land himself, I imagine this must have brought a smile to Moses' place. So Moses sees the land and then in verse four, the Lord says, See, Moses, I kept my promise. This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto your seed. I have caused you to see it with your eyes. It's interesting, way back on January 18th, 2015, we studied Genesis 12, verse 7, where this whole promise started with Abraham. And now here we are, all these years later, seeing it fulfilled. God restates this promise to Abraham in Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 15, 18, Genesis 17, 8. This exact promise to Isaac in Genesis 26, 3, and then to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. And guess what? God kept his promise, even though it took a long time. I think of the fact that we started that all the way back in 2015, and here we are in 2019, we're seeing it fulfilled. It took four years for us to study the fulfillment of that promise. It might take us that long just to study the fulfillment of a promise when you consider the fact that it took Israel 400 years to experience that promise. Why are you giving up when God's given you a promise? You have no reason to not hold on. It hasn't been 400 years yet. It might not have even been four years yet. Trust the Lord. Hold on to his promises. He is faithful and he always keeps them. Moses got to see it even if he couldn't experience going with them. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Do you regularly trust in those promises even though it seems like they're a long way off? I love the, the word that God gives. I think it's to Habakkuk in the Old Testament where he says, listen, the vision's of, for afar off. Write it down even though you won't get to run for it just yet. It's for afar off, but that's okay. Trust the Lord. He will be faithful. Now we get to verse five and here it is. And so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. I love that. Moses, the servant of the Lord, God's willing slave. It's bond slave is what it means. The one who would have his ear pierced because he had said, I love my master. I don't want to go free. I want to serve him for life. And that's a wonderful way to see one's life. That's the way Moses viewed himself. I'm God's willing slave. Does that describe your life? Well, then in verse six, we get something interesting. And he buried him, Moses, in a valley in the land of Moab 
over against Beth Peor, another mountain, mountain area in that region. But no man knows of his tomb unto this day. Now, the only he who buried him, Moses, in a valley in the land of Moab, who's up there with Moses? There's only one person up there with Moses. It's the Lord. The only option is the Lord. And not only that, but not only is it the only option is that the Lord buried Moses, but he's not buried on the mountain. He buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, which means Moses's body after he died was taken down the mountain. Now, it's very likely that was done by Michael the archangel. In Jude verse 9, it just has this out-of-the-nowhere verse that says that Michael was disputing with Satan over Moses' body. It just comes out of nowhere. It has a point. I mean, I know when I first read it, I was like, what's that? I don't know what that's about. So it's very likely that Michael the archangel transported the body to this place where he was buried in a valley, and then it mentions that the tomb was kept a secret. That leaves me, I'm an inquisitive type, that leaves me with a couple questions. Why does the Lord make Moses' tomb a secret, number one? And why would Satan be involved in a conflict over the body? We're going to have some fun for a few minutes if you just endure me. Many believe that Moses will be one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 that are there for three and a half years preaching to the nation of Israel, calling them to follow Christ, and then they're killed by the Antichrist. For three days, their bodies lie dead in the streets. People are celebrating whatever. Then they rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. If Moses is one of those two witnesses, then that means Moses' earthly body still has a use. So do we have any evidence of a resurrection for Moses in the scripture? No, we do not. However, we do see Moses with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is he with? He is with the only other guy who had an earthly body in heaven, Elijah. Elijah was scooped up by the chariot of fire. The Bible says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So I don't know what part of heaven they were placed in. You know, I don't know if they got, Elijah got there and he's like, how cool. You know, and like Michael the archangel is like, yeah, I don't think it's so cool yet. You can't come all the way in because he still has his earthly body. I don't know how that got resolved, but we see Moses with him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not like the disciples are looking and going, hey, it's, uh, it's Elijah and Moses. Ooh, he's looking rough, man. Ghost-like and all that kind. No comments made about them looking any different. So it's safe to assume that they probably looked very similar. Now you might be saying, hold on, Will, there's someone else in heaven with an earthly body. What about Enoch? Enoch's an interesting case. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 and look at verse six with me. Not six, I'm sorry, five. Hebrews eleven five. It talks about this experience that Enoch had. I am going somewhere with this, so bear with me. It says in Hebrews eleven five, by faith Enoch was, what's the word in your Bible? Translated is what the King James says. It's a unique word. And it's used three times in this passage. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him for before his translation. It almost sounds like God's trying to make a point. Like that word shows up three times in one verse. Very repetitious. The word translated, it can either mean to transfer or to change. If Enoch is a type of the church being raptured before God judges the world, which I do believe, then it would be more proper to see translated as changed since we get our resurrection bodies during the rapture. And resurrection bodies never die. Hebrews 11.5 says that Enoch was translated, why? For the purpose that he should not see death. That's interesting. That he would not taste death is literally the translation. So it's not just that he wouldn't experience it then, that he would never experience the flavor of death. That is only possible if Enoch received a resurrection body. 
which would explain why we would not see him on the mount with Jesus. God was done with Enoch, but he wasn't finished with Elijah and Moses. It's all speculation, of course. But I do believe there's good evidence to show that God will have need of Moses' body in the future. And you might be saying, well, wait a second, Will. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die. Moses, he can't die again. Well, others have died twice. Remember Lazarus? I mean, he died twice technically, right? Just because it was only three days between Lazarus' death and resurrection, and maybe doesn't mean that God couldn't do it 3,000 years later for Moses. Now, he might be going, but isn't that reincarnation where like Moses' spirit's up here, and then it, you know, it's waiting 3,000 years and then comes back into a body? Not at all. The same spirit and soul are going into the same body. That's a very definition of resurrection. It has nothing in common with reincarnation. The Bible does not teach reincarnation anywhere. I've had people try to tell me and say, well, John the Baptist is reincarnation because Elijah's spirit was upon John. No, the Bible's clear that it was the power and ministry of Elijah resting upon John's spirit and soul in John's body. There was no Elijah's spirit and soul in John's body. John was a unique individual. His spirit and soul were in his body. So the Bible does not teach reincarnation, it teaches resurrection, and that would be perfectly fine if Moses is raised from the dead, becomes one of the two witnesses, and then dies again, and then receives his resurrection body as his job is done. So that was a fun little detour into the fire swamp. Back to Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. And Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt. 40 years as a shepherd in the desert, and then 40 years as another kind of shepherd in the desert leading Israel. But it mentions here that even though he was 120 years old, his eyes were not dim. He still had great eyesight. His natural force, his physical strength and vigor, it was, it was not abated. It didn't diminish. You have to remember something. Moses killed an Egyptian taskmaster, very likely an armed Egyptian taskmaster by himself. He was not a weakling. Like I always see it when you see uh, the Ten Commandments and you see, you know, Charlton Heston and he's, he's a slave. He's all muscular and manly and the ladies are going, Ooh, you know, and then of course at the end, you know, he's this like bear rug guy, you know, walking around. No, man, that's not at all. Moses was, he was man, man through and through all the way to the end. And this isn't simply Moses boasting with his last words. He's making the point that he didn't get to go into the land because of God's discipline, not because of age or infirmity. That's a sobering reminder to us to never misrepresent the Lord. And so, verse 8, the children of Israel, they wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days, the same amount of time they wept for Aaron. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, he was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and they did as the Lord commanded Moses. They mourned Moses for 30 days, but then they moved on with Joshua as their leader. And they were going to be just fine with Joshua because God filled them with the same wisdom that he had given to Moses. And this is why we should never place our trust in any leader, but we place it in the leader. Amen? And yet, that doesn't mean Moses was just anybody. Moses was indeed a special man used mightily by God. And what made him so special? Well, the chapter closes with three things. And there arose not a prophet, verse 10, since in Israel, like unto Moses, number one, whom 
the Lord knew face to face. Number two, and all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And then number three, in all that mighty hand and in all that great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. Moses had an incredible testimony. There was no prophet in Israel like him, not until Jesus came. Why? Number one, because he knew the Lord face to face. Joshua proved to be a great leader, but Moses knew God face to face. The beautiful thing, we haven't seen God's face, right? But we have been brought near, right? The Bible says that the veil is torn in two. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us draw near with full assurance of faith. We don't have to stay away. We can come boldly before his throne of grace. And someday we will see him face to face. Secondly, the miracles that were done before Pharaoh, the plagues. Other men and women would be used miraculously by God, but never on the same scale as the 10 plagues in Egypt. No one did anything like that. Not Elijah, nobody. And then thirdly, in all that mighty hand and in all that great terror, literally massively awesome deeds, which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. Think about it. Add them all up. The water from the rock, the manna, how many times the water was bad and they cured it. How many awesome things that God did through Moses. No one would ever do the awesome things that Moses did. Again, not until Jesus, which is why Moses is so highly revered by the Jewish people. Moses was far from perfect. We have studied his life for four years here at Calvary Chapel Orlando. I mean, these first five books are kind of like his own biography, an autobiography. Moses was far from perfect. His story spans four books of the Old Testament, and it affects the entirety of Scripture. He was indeed a great man. But as we close out this era of Israel's history and we begin the journey with Joshua in a new book, Moses should be remembered for these things, his relationship with God. He should be remembered for the great miracles he did. But the New Testament emphasizes one other thing we cannot forget, and it's Moses' faithfulness. So turn to the book of Hebrews with me, and I'm going to leave you with a few verses here as we close. Hebrews 3.5 and Hebrews 11.24. In Hebrews 3.5, it tells us, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. I mean, I can think of maybe a couple cooler testimonies than that, but not many. Can you imagine if that was placed on your gravestone and Will was faithful in all his house? Everything God gave him to do, he was faithful. That's pretty cool, isn't it? His testimony was one of being faithful. And Hebrews 11 says the same exact thing. You think of all the things that God could point out about Moses' life, but what marks his great faith or what defines his great faith? Here it is in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And then by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. Moses, with every obstacle that he faced in his life, what did he do? He trusted the Lord. And in many of those situations, it looked like trusting the Lord was the wrong decision. Walking through the, the water, I mean, that sounds like insanity. The whole staying in Egypt during the whole angel of death moment, get out of town sounds like the best answer. And yet they celebrated the Passover. 
the whole situation of leaving all the treasures of Egypt behind because he believed in a greater treasure that God had for him if he'd be obedient to the Lord. Moses was faithful in all his house. And if we're gonna love God supremely, that needs to be our testimony too. Amen? Let's let that be our testimony. Let's all stand. Oh, here we are, Lord. (laughs) Come to the end of another amazing book that you gave to us so we could know you better, that we might love you more fully because we understand how much you love us. Lord, we thank you for your servant Moses. We thank you for all the things that that you've taught us through him through this book. And Lord, it is our goal that we would be those who our testimony is being faithful, that like he urged Israel, we would be a people who love you supremely with all that's in us. And he would do, as your, your son said, the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and might. Lord, we give ourselves to you to do that. Otherwise, Lord, all this time is wasted. Lord, if our goal and our aim is not to love you supremely, it is not to be faithful, then we just wasted a very large chunk of our time. So Lord, we commit that to you. We want the lesson of Deuteronomy to live in our hearts to be those who love you more than anything else. So fill us with your spirit, Lord, so we can live that commitment out. Give us the opportunities, Lord, to show that faithfulness to you. Lord, whatever it is you want us to do, speak to us that we might be able to know which way to go and where to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have great and precious promises from God to us that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He will be our help in time of need, that we have direct access to His presence given to us by the blood of Jesus. God, who began a good work in us, is sure to finish it. We serve a great God, in whose promises are yes and amen. There is no one like Him. So, trust Him. Follow Him. He will not let us down. We have everything we need to finish our race well just like Moses did. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.